You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of August, 2018, on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Bashar al-Assad's offensive in Idlib province takes a turn as dozens are killed as an apartment block is razed to the ground. The explosion killed displaced civilians, jihadists, and a weapons depot. Is Assad's assault on rebel enclaves now unstoppable? My guests Michael Goldfarb and James Rogers will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... If there's anyone who has dollars, euros or gold under their pillows, they should go exchange it for liras at our banks. This is a national domestic battle. The Turkish lira has hit a record low, the nosedive affecting shares and currencies around the world. But wait, didn't Turkey have one of the hottest economies? Are we really worried? Plus, we try to get a handle on the Brazilian election with the frontrunner behind bars indefinitely. And is it actually possible to curb cell phone addiction? All this ahead on Midori House with me, Daniel Bates. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are veteran journalist and broadcaster Michael Goldfarb and James Rogers, head of international journalism studies at City University London. Welcome, gentlemen, both to the program and back to Midori House. We begin by turning an eye to the latest on the war in Syria, where the death toll from an explosion in a residential building thought to be housing weapons and ammunition in Syria's rebel-held Idlib province has risen to 69. This includes as many as 17 children, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, 30 three people also injured. This explosion brought down a six-story building housing displaced people from Homs province. The White Helmets Rescue Group described the scene as one of destruction and death. President Bashar al-Assad has said he will be targeting Idlib next after forces loyal to him retook eastern Ghouta near Damascus and two southwestern provinces. This, of course, aided by Russian airstrikes and Iranian-backed militias. Michael, perhaps we'll start with you. The offensive has really ramped up, no? Yeah, I mean, we've been reading about Idlib being targeted for at least the last month to six weeks. And my guess is, I mean, it's impossible. You know, people, whenever we talk about Syria, have to Mm -hmm. remember there are virtually no independent journalists left in the country. So this is all informed, you know, reasonably informed speculation from London. But clearly... The the rebel factions who are now all surrounded in Idlib have been stockpiling weaponry, and they very foolishly stockpiled it in an apartment complex. And this is the kind of thing that happens in war zones. It's an accident waiting to happen. I don't mean to sound sanguine about it, but if you store, um, without too much concern about how you do it, a bunch of heavy-duty weaponry among civilians, there will be an accident. James, as Michael says here, it's hard to get independent verification, but uh, likely this is the target then, a weapons depot. 
Well, it looks like it. Of course, the exact circumstances of the explosion aren't clear either. Mm. It could be, of course, that these explosives were and other weapons were being incautiously stored. I mean, as Michael says, this is a reality of war, but it's also a reality very much of contemporary war. If you think about regular established armies, they do not tend to store large quantities of ordnance among civilian housing. They have them in safe, security, secure areas outside of major population centres for a very good reason. When, however, one side or more than one side, of course, in this particular conflict uh, is using irregular forces who don't have access to regular military bases, uh, then this kind of thing um, is always a risk to happen, particularly, you know, also, as Michael was pointing out, Idlib, the last part, the last substantial part of Syria, which is not in government hands, has been a place to which other fighters from other parts of the country have fled, bringing with them, when they have been able to, their weapons. And so they've had to store them very much in ad hoc way, one would imagine. And of course, therefore, storing them in an apartment block, if this is indeed what happened, is, is also obviously going to be very, very risky. And the other thing to remember is that over the last couple of years, whenever rebel enclaves have been surrounded and thoroughly shelled, and there's been a fair amount of civilian death toll, when there's finally some kind of surrender, um, the UN has overseen a number of population transfers always to Idlib because it's the most secure area for those who are against the Assad regime. So I think you mentioned in, in, the, in your intro, I mean, Homs, which was obliterated five years ago. This war is still going on. Um, you know, there are people there who are jammed in from Homs. There will be people there from Ghouta, the suburb of Damascus, who were evacuated some months ago and ended up in Idlib. So it's really... It's a terrible situation, and this is, I think, just a foreshadowing of what is likely to happen, because it's not likely that the rebels, and particularly the, you know, the Al-Qaeda-linked rebels, will surrender. They have no reason to. And so you have all of these civilians trapped between them and the Assad regime and the, their Russian backers. We've mentioned that Idlib province, one of the last areas of territory still held by rebels opposed to Assad. Uh, Russia, James, they're not going to let uh, they're not going to let this go, are they? No, they're not. I mean, Russia, however one judges their intervention in Syria, I think it is fair to say that Russia observed a Western policy vacuum uh, in the late summer of 2015 and decided to act. And they decided also one of the things that they were doing for domestic consumption was to show to their own people and indeed to the rest of the world as Russia sought a bigger role on the international stage, was to show that if you are our, our, our ally, if we are going to support you, we will make sure that we do support you. And if we say that we are going to to send in troops to do the job, to help you stay in power, as in the case of President Assad, we will make sure that that happens. Uh, and so I think Russia is going to very much make sure that um, if indeed something which seemed inconceivable before their intervention in the conflict, there is a prospect of one side having uh, a military victory, then they're going to make sure that that is seen through. What happens, though, um, uh, after this province, as one assumes, will fall eventually uh, to government, uh, to the government and its supporters. What happens to those people who have previously been able to move to other areas of the country is a very big question indeed. In the uh, south and in the north, uh, this action getting quite close to the border with Turkey uh, and with a, a demilitarized zone uh, from 1974 with Israel in, in the case of the south. Uh, how big of a concern is this uh, for the west, do you think, Michael? 
Well, it, it's been a concern since it started. But, I mean, the West is, in, is not going to get involved now. And I think that's pretty clear. This is a story that we will, re- well, secondhand, report on. We'll, we'll hear about it. We'll have pictures. The people trapped inside, I mean, it's almost become ritualized now. There are people who will have access to the Internet, and they'll be reporting daily as Idlib falls, and they are, and, and people... Civilians especially suffer terribly. But, you know, the West essentially washed its hand of it, um, I guess, was it 2013? It was five years ago. Yeah, five years ago this month when all these discussions were happening. Um, The first chemical weapons attack by Assad on his own people. This was a red line for Obama. Um, He walked back from it. The sequence was... He was not sure he should have said that in the first place. Then the British Parliament rejected standing alongside America in this. Uh, The labor leader at the time, Ed Miliband, to his eternal discredit, I have to say, successfully led a rebellion against the government. So when Britain wouldn't stand with America, Obama, who was already doubtful, walked it back. That was in 2013. That's the effective end of Western thoughts on this. Israel takes care of its own border. It um, is keen to let everybody know that people who do make it over the border who need uh, medical treatment, receive medical Mm -hmm. treatment, I don't think for a second that the Russians are interested in a mistake happening on the border Israel shares with Syria, just past the Golan Heights. And I... Again, this is speculation, but it's reported that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu talks to Vladimir Putin every single week. And I'm sure that top of their agenda every single week is what's happening in Syria so that no mistakes get made. If Israel's going to send a plane to take out a Hezbollah operative in Syria, they have to let the Russians know. If they're going to take out a weapons stash that might have chemical weapons, they let Russia know. Similarly, Russia looks out for Israel's interests. No, Russia runs the show. I'm running on, James. You should jump yeah. in here. Now, <laughs> you know. there, there's, there's a very interesting point, I think, also to be made about Russia, which is this, that uh, while it has, from their point of view, certainly been a successful policy they've pursued over the last three years now, it's important to remember this. If you think about the generation who are now running the Russian military, Russian politics, they're all pretty much of an age, and some of them actually served in Afghanistan. They certainly all remember it which was obviously one of the things which many historians would argue now actually brought the Soviet Union to an end. So I think Russia is going to support President Assad, but it is also going to try to keep this a finite operation. We'll try to set clear goals as to what victory looks like and leave because um, Afghanistan, of course, did not end well. And I think that still haunts Russian decision-making at a political, military and diplomatic level. So long as we're having a... This conversation, and I know we're going on to talk about (laughs) Turkey next. What's interesting, to to step it back from Syria, is to note that Russia is deeply engaged with Iran, not just in Syria, but today it's reported in the Financial Times that uh, Russia and the Iranian regime have reached some understandings about trade along around the Caspian Sea. The southern border of the Caspian Sea is Iran and, and... the northern border is is in Russia. And 
It's that's interesting. And then, you know, the Turkish government is very disappointed with the American government about they see themselves as targets of some kind of economic warfare. So they're talking to Russia. And so it is what we're watching happen as Donald Trump you know, tweets about Omarosa is Russia is reestablishing itself as the indispensable player, not so much in the Middle East, but in that central Asian area that is predominantly Muslim, even in in Russia. And it's a remarkable thing to watch because it will be very difficult to undo once America finally, you know, moves on from its current regime. Yeah, absolutely fascinating stuff and and, uh, interesting uh, to look perhaps at at what sanctions have done versus how Russia continues to have uh, a hold of power by being involved in in that region. But uh, I do want to move on to Turkey to make sure we have enough uh, time to speak about the economic issues there. The country's currency, the lira, is in free fall. The central bank has promised to take all necessary measures, including raising interest rates to slow the economic crisis. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is adamant the crisis has nothing to do with Turkey's economic indicators, but rather related directly to recent U.S. sanctions slapped on Ankara. Uh, is this really so simple? Can we pin this on, on one thing, sanctions, do you think? Uh, I think Mr. I think President Erdogan is certainly going to try to do that. There's a very, very clear narrative there for him and for his supporters. That clip that you played at the beginning of the program saying, you know, if you've got dollars or euros or gold under the pillow, go down and exchange it. It's almost a, a patriotic duty to do so. It's very, it, it's, it's, it's a very, very good Good um, thing to be able to resort to if you if the, if the economy is going badly and it is the Turkish lira has lost forty percent of its value this year and you think about how that's going to feed through into food inflation um, to say it's not nothing that we're doing wrong it's the way that the it's a it's a it's a act it's concerted act against us from outside the country so but it's going to be very interesting to see and there's certainly given the uh, extent of Mr Erdogan's popularity one imagines there will be a substantial constituency of people very. Very, very, very willing to believe that version of events, uh, but it is not by any means uh, an uncontested one. Uh, and if you look at other analysis, it suggests that some investors are getting cold feet because of their, their concerned about uh, Mr. Erdogan's extensive powers now. And therefore, one thing which investors do want is a degree of certainty, and that tends off very, very often to go with the reliable rule of law, and not rather at the whims of a, of a government which can just um, do pretty much what it wants. Well, the U.S. has imposed these sanctions on Turkey over its refusal to extradite a U.S. preacher imprisoned in the country. The central bank seemingly failed to soothe the resulting market turmoil, uh, banning banks from swapping liras for foreign currencies, among other measures. Uh, uh, Michael, is there a plan and, and what's the next plan? As I, I don't think there's a plan. Yeah. I mean, the, the markets um, are looking to the Turkish government. I mean, there's two strands here. Um, Going back a couple of years, there was the coup attempt against Erdogan. Now, he was already well on the march to establishing himself as some kind of autocrat. I mean, he, he, he legitimately can claim democratic, a democratic mantle. He was an enormously popular man. He was a populist, and he, he stroked the Turkish population. But after that, um, he really took giant steps into autocracy. And one of the things that he did was he he began to make demands of the United States that that no one can. I mean, let's not forget who's the global hegemon, even if it is led by 
Donald Trump at the moment. And he demanded the extradition of this fellow, Fetehullah Gulen, who leads a kind of sect within Islam and had been an early supporter of Erdogan and they fell out. Gerlen lives in exile in Pennsylvania. He demanded his extradition. The Americans said, no, we don't do that. You can't, and we won't. So this pastor who was, you know, on some mission in southern Turkey was detained and is being held as a hostage almost until Gulen is released. Now, this isn't going to please America. On top of that, after the um, coup, there were questions about how sustainable the Turkish economic boom was when the political situation seemed to be unstable, even though Erdogan quickly... um, he quickly contained the coup. He arrested like 6,000 people, everybody. You know, he was college professors, journalists, half the army's high command, all in jail. So there was, there was some tremor. So the central bank opened the floodgates, stoked a huge boom, and inflation set in. And how do you damp down inflation? Well, classically, the central bank raises interest rates, but the people who would pay the price most for higher interest rates are his supporters. Right. It's the man on the street. And he's, a, he's an autocrat, but he's also a true populist. And he didn't want to hurt his people. So his son-in-law, who is the well, secretary... Hopefully is the finance minister. Is the, yeah. yeah, that's the other thing financial markets don't like. They don't mm. like too much nepotism. It's one thing when you're dealing with the Gulf states because they're monarchies, so you expect nepotism, but not necessarily in a secular, allegedly democratic society. And so you have this situation where um, the markets aren't going to like it till interest rates are raised. He's got to bite the bullet and do that. And if he doesn't, I'm talking about Erdogan, then the lira is going to continue to plunge. Well, in past, when Erdogan has taken a bold stance, he's had a a very hot economy behind him. But uh, it's a different story now, James. Uh, Are the comments in reaction he's made to the Lira slide, is that going to hurt him? He's he's calling the U.S. its NATO partner a backstabber, for instance. It's not going to inspire the confidence of of, interna- of the international markets, I don't suppose. Um, but it may may play well, qu- quite well for him at home, um, in the short term at least. I mean, it's going to depend upon how much the central bank can prop up the mm. currency. But as I said earlier, you know, it's lost 40% of its value this year. And, and everybody knows, you know, you notice that quite very quickly and very severely in food prices. Even if, you know, in the short term, there are benefits like making it more um, attractive to tourists, I suppose, because, you know, the tourist dollar or euro or pound will go further than it might otherwise do. But that's not going to be a long-term solution. I wonder about the other the fallouts. Uh, Angela Merkel says uh, no one is interested in the economic destabilization of Turkey. Uh, what would be the, the main concerns of a down-and-out uh, Turkey, do you think? Well, I think you know Turkey is a very important country in the region, as we've just been saying, and nobody wants to see it running into trouble because it's not going to end well for anybody. I mean, people have their differences with Mr. Erdogan, but they they do not necessarily want... I don't think there's many Western leaders who are standing by the yeah. side che- sidelines cheering at the prospect of him be- his being removed in a military coup, for example, um, because I think people want to understand that they have a, a stable partner with whom they can deal, even if, as, as, as the West does with Turkey, it has certain differences. Uh, so, no, nobody would want this, particularly given that it borders Syria, which, is, which has caused you know all sorts of instability in the region, but also uh, in terms of migration of people fleeing the conflict there... It's caused a degree of, it's been a contributory factor to recent political instability in Western Europe too. Yeah, exa- exactly. In 2015, um, 
it was because Erdogan was, I don't know, he was making a point in, in a fit of pique. He made it easy for the six, seven hundred thousand Syrians who have fled north into his country to just leave. And that's when we saw those extraordinary pictures of people just kind of getting in boats, floating across the strait to the island of Lesbos, I guess, you know, which is only a few miles off mm. the Turkish coast, and then walking across via land through Greece. He does have some cards to play. The problem is that, that he is an exceptionally mercurial character. He's probably closest to Donald Trump in a lot of ways, except he's, I think he probably is seriously religious, whereas Donald Trump isn't. Um, and he also has a lot more control of his government. So if he has a whim, he can act on it. Whereas Trump's whims, for the most part, he can't act on. So um, it, it's a difficult situation. But my guess is that for, that the markets at the moment will force him to back off. At a certain point, the central bank will be allowed to do what it has to do, which is probably dramatically raise interest rates. Because uh, the other thing about Turkey is that much of its international debt, and it has a lot, is denominated in dollars. And as it, if the lira falls dramatically against the dollar, it makes it that much harder to pay back your debts. So um, he get, he'll get into a vicious circle. Sooner or later, somebody will tell him, listen, your son-in-law doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to, you know, tell him to get with, with the yeah, program. It's going to be a difficult sell to his constituents and his supporters within Turkey if and when that moment comes as well. Yeah. Fascinating analysis. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, James Rogers, and Michael Goldfarb. Uh, we head to Brazil now, where campaigning has begun this week. But in a hotly contested presidential race at this stage, it is very hard to determine who is the favorite to win. Jailed former president Lula da Silva remains number one in the polls. Michael, uh, you've recently returned from Brazil, I understand. Didn't you manage to, to get a sense of, of the political scene when you were there? Well, it, it, I don't speak Portuguese, but... You know, yeah, I did. Towards the end, I mean, I did an event in Rio um, that was <clears throat> eye-opening for me because two years ago that event was held in a favela. Mm -hmm. is a kind of bringing literary festivals to the people. And it used to go from favela to favela. Can't go to the favelas anymore. There's the, the favelas are in a state of absolute lockdown. The military has replaced the police and is patrolling them. It's really quite a dangerous situation. Um, I saw something that is quite extraordinary in the small town of Parachi, which is on the coast between Rio and Sao Paulo, on the shop, main shopping drag. It's a historic town, but it's got a modern shopping street. I'm walking down the street, and there's a Pentecostal church doing an open-air service because um, evangelical Christianity is rapidly replacing Catholicism in, in uh, Brazil. And just next door, in the next storefront, is a Free Lula storefront. And you find them all over. Free Lula. Lula da Silva, who's in prison, is the most popular politician in the country. If he was allowed to run, and the, there'll be a court judgment about whether he can run from his prison cell, if he was allowed to run, he would win handily. It's not likely he'll be allowed, which means that he, the extreme right-wing candidate, mm. Jair Bolsonaro, who is, you know, building up this... this 
you know, following the new ideology of ethno-nationalism, um, some of his statements are outright racist, or not his, but people who work with him are outright racist. You'll see, you'll just see that, mm-hmm. that there, all this tension, but your question mm-hmm. was, Daniel, was, do you feel it? It's Brazil. No, I didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. People are still out. They're having a good time. But underneath, everyone you talk to is deeply concerned because the country is poised on the edge, economically and politically. Uh, you know, even with the, the population demanding change, James, the usual parties will continue to dominate. Do you, do, what do you uh, buy of this uh, rebel far-right leader, Bolsonaro? Uh, might he do well if uh, Lula's taken off the ticket? Well, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think obviously he, anybody has got to, could stand to benefit if Lula is taken off the ticket. But of course, those um, people who he has more or less nominated to stand in his, his stead might well reap the benefit in particular. I think there probably is. I mean, this is sort of if one thinks of the sort of economic success story of Brazil over the last 20 years or so, it's uh, ready identification among the BRICS, the B of the BRICS nation, one of the world's leading emerging economies, um, and one which it seemed at least had successfully made the transition from military dictatorship to democracy uh, and seemed to be heading continuing to head in that direction. And then um, uh, in, in, in Jaya Bolsano, we have somebody who's quite ready to associate himself with um, some of the more um, outrageous pronouncements that might have better sat in, in that era. Um, I mean, it's difficult to say, but there is a lot at stake. Um, this is not, you know, democracy's roots have to take a long time to grow very deeply. And there's no guarantee, of course, that a country that does successfully for a couple of decades is necessarily going to stay that way. And what do you, what do you make of the race just now is it a bit of a farce? I mean, Lula's the top of the ticket. The first presidential debate, we had eight out of thirteen people um, there, not even mentioning Lula. Little of substance came out of that. Uh, what do you make of the race? Well, overall? I mean, I think given the importance of television news in Brazil, as in many large countries, you know, there's not, um, you know, national newspapers don't have the, the same reach as they might in smaller countries like the UK, for example. Um, television is incredibly important, and as far as I remember from electoral law in Brazil, the amount of airtime can depend upon the amount of candidates and the amount of support you can garner. So that is going to be important um, uh, and, and, and could well uh, influence the outcome. Fascinating stuff. I want to make sure we have uh, time for our last item today, smartphones. It seems we're all addicted to them these days, but a new startup wants to stop our compulsive habits. But can this actually be done? The company is partnering with London City Airport to give travelers um, that are willing to swap their smartphones a no-frills phone uh, to take with them on their travels. Would you consider this? Are you kidding? <laughs> are, if you're not totally paranoid mm. about your your devices right now and who's inside... I'm. I'm it, Listeners can't see this because it's radio. I'm holding up my smartphone. I have no idea who's inside that now. You know, I just accept that up to a point, the security services of several countries have figured a way to go in there if they want it. They're certainly collecting the the, the megadata out of it. So, no, I'm not going to give my smartphone in exchange for, you know, I'll just, you know, 
just say no, people. You know, switch it off when you're in the air and just let it be. Take a break. You know, smell the coffee, sip the roses. You know, it's... Okay, James, what about the principle then? Not not necessarily giving your phone over where it's unsecured, Mm. but, I mean, having a a no-nonsense phone so you know you can't just switch it back on. I think it's the future, actually. Mm. I think it's going to be the future for a lot of people. I, I, um, well, I'll declare a slight personal interest here. I flew back this morning from two weeks overseas. I've got, like many of us, I've got several email accounts, but I haven't looked at my main one for two whole weeks. I'm quite proud of myself. I will tomorrow morning. I know how many messages are in it because I've looked at the icon on my screen, but I haven't haven't actually touched on it to see. I think it's, I really do. I, I, I predict that in 10 years' time, we will be surprised about the extent to which we did this. And it's going to take a while for people to change their minds. It's like a kid with a new toy. Wow, look at all this I can do. But no, we've seen the things over the last couple of years about you know, allegations it's poisoning our democracy and so on and so on. I think we'll be surprised how much we use these things. And I think certainly when it comes to vacation, holiday time um, in, in the future, then people, I'm not sure if you'll give it away to somebody at City Airport and get a brick in exchange. <laughs> but who knows, it may become, if you get a designer brick that's worth $500, you know, and is really cool, and, you know, maybe that'll be the thing to be seen in a very fashionable holiday resort with. Who knows? I, I wonder, I'm, I'm going away to, to Italy for a few weeks, and, and with all these itineraries and reservations and things, how actually hard it would be to get around without a smartphone because everything's done of course by email now or web reservations um but of course you then have to print your maps your itineraries the way we always did it um do you think we'll get back to that at all nope 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 <laughs> no, I, i've got a i've got a 13 year old daughter and i she knows no other way and i i i it's something i do fear i mean we're pretty brutal her mother and i about um you know, demanding screens, you know, screen breaks and whatever else. Um, but, you know, it's the way she c- communicates. And I, I, you mentioned maps and printing things. I, I don't think she would know how to do that. She couldn't mm. read one. Mm. You know, she just couldn't. Yeah. And, and geography is not one of her, is, a, is one of her better subjects. But I don't think she could begin to navigate herself mm-hmm. around a city with, you know, a fold out, sheet of paper I just I think I think getting lost will be a concept that doesn't mean anything to to that generation I have have children of similar age and I don't think they'll do it and for all my high mindedness I will admit that of course yesterday I downloaded my boarding pass on the app on my phone and then sailed through (laughs) check-in with that but I didn't read my I didn't read my email you ignored the emails (laughs) fair enough well that does bring us to the end of today's show Michael Goldfarb and James Rogers thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House I'm Daniel Bates thank you so much for listening and goodbye.